0: And thank you again to all the help back there in the sound booth. If you're watching on the live stream, I forgot to change the title from last week. It still says New Beginnings, but that was a pretty good message too. If you didn't hear it, you could go back and listen to that one. But this morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 25 for our main text, and I'll also read you one verse out of Psalm 101. So if you want to just listen to the one out of the Psalms or turn to both places, Psalm 101, we're going to go ahead and read one verse, and then we'll take a story from Matthew chapter 25 and as I look at the clock in my notes I'm pretty sure that this is going to be part one of a two-part message And what I want to do is here in the month of January, as we're starting out a brand new year, is I just kind of want to talk to you this morning as a church family. We are going to exposit this text, and then we're going to give the main meaning of it, and then we're going to focus on one aspect of the parable that is given in Matthew chapter number 25 and consider the fact of faithfulness. What does that mean? How does faith factor into it and as a church family as Christians if we are to see results and be used of God in the long run God wants us to have faith and he wants us to be faithful consistently serving him and doing what he has commanded us to do Psalm 101 and verse number six God says mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me he that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Here, the word of God says that God himself speaks and says, mine eyes shall be upon the faithful. What That phrase means is that the people who God will look to, the people who God will put his blessing and favor on, the people who are to be used by God, God says, I will set mine eyes upon, I will use, I will bless, I will show favor to the faithful. He goes on to say the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. We know from studying the Bible and the word itself that oftentimes when God refers to his people being perfect and his desire for them to be perfect, he does not mean sinless perfection, For only Christ is sinless. No matter who you are, no matter what position you hold, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus was the spotless lamb of God who took away the sins of the world because he had no sin himself. But rather, it speaks to maturity and completeness and there is a sense that god wants us to grow as his servants that it may be said of us we are truly disciples of jesus christ we are complete we are mature as servants of god and the way that we get there the first part of that verse says that god will set his eyes upon the faithful the word in the hebrew there for faithful the definition is given as this one of the ways that it is applied of long continuance, steadfast, sure, worthy of belief and confidence. And the Bible is telling that God looks for such to serve Him. God shows favor to those. People. When you think about being an employer, and I don't know if anyone in here has experience in management, but when companies are looking for people to hire, it seems especially in this day and age, if you will show up when you're supposed to show up and be able to consistently follow simple instructions, there's a good chance you'll go a long way at the company you show up to work for, because that seems to be one of the hardest parts is to simply find someone who will show up when they were supposed to show up and will continue being consistent and faithful in service to an employer. But as children of God, he wants us to be reliable, to be consistent. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be considered a flash in the pan Christian or pastor. I don't want to be looked at as one that, boy, when I get excited about something, I show up and tell everybody I'm here to serve God and I'm going to get it going. And then I flame out and no one sees me. And then I come back and then I flame out. God wants us to be on fire for him. He wants us to have zeal and passion. But a lot of times the key to successfully living the Christian life is just to consistently year in, year out, keep doing what we know we're supposed to do. A lot of the Christian life, we wonder, what is the will of God for me? Where am I supposed to live? What area am I supposed to serve in? What has God called me to do? I believe all of those questions will be answered and those things will come if we will simply put one foot in front of the other consistently and faithfully doing what we already know we're supposed to do. The overwhelming majority of the Christian life, we know exactly what it is we're supposed to do because it is contained in the word of God. The struggle is battling my flesh and overcoming my sin and my inconsistency so that I could be called a faithful servant of God. I think of my grandfather, my mom's dad, who was not called to be a pastor or a missionary. And he lives in Florida now in his 80s, but year in, year out for decades He showed up to his small Baptist church. He listened. He said, amen. He gave his offering. He taught a class and God has used his life to see four of his children surrendered a full-time ministry and service of the Lord. You want to be used by God. You want to see victories in your Christian life. Sure. Let's study the deep things of the word. Sure. Let's do for God all that he calls us to do, but we're going to have to be consistent. Faithful of long continuance in the things which we have been taught. It's been said that when God looks for servants and people to use, he looks for two abilities, dependability and availability. The Bible actually says that God intentionally Oftentimes chooses not to call and not to use the best resources, not to call the people whom we would look at and say, boy, that makes sense that God would do a great work through them. But he intentionally looks for the humble things of the world and the things that are abased to confound the proud and the mighty because God wants to get the glory. When God wanted to deliver his people, he went and called Gideon, who was hiding out of fear and threshing the wheat. And the angel of the Lord showed up and said, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor, while he's hiding from his enemies. And then Gideon said, Lord, we've got a problem. Our army is small and theirs is huge. God said, okay, let's send some of yours home. And then send some more of yours home and all the way down till there was 300 people going up against an army that was more than the eye could behold or count. And God caused the confusion to come among the enemies. And what was the brilliant military plan that God used to defeat them? 300 people at night lighting a candle, breaking a pot. And God caused confusion among the Midianites and they all began to kill each other. God wanted it known. Deliverance did not come because Gideon was some General MacArthur with a great battle plan, but rather victory came because Gideon served the true and living God and it was God that wrought the victory. So do not be discouraged this morning, whatever your past is, whatever you think it may be that you're missing in the tools, from the tools in your toolbox. God is looking to show himself strong on the behalf of, of his people and if you will be available if you will be dependable if you will be surrendered to his will if you will be faithful god says mine eyes shall be upon you i will show you favor and you can see great victories in your life your prayers answered not because of you but because of the god who's willing to use you let's look at matthew chapter 25 And before we begin reading in verse number 13, we'll look a little bit to the context of these parables that Christ is telling. Way back in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples came and asked Jesus privately, when would the temple be overthrown? What would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the world? Jesus goes throughout Matthew chapter 24 and talks a lot about the end times prophecies. He says in verse 15 and 16, Referencing the prophecy contained in the book of Daniel, the abomination of desolation, and how halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, the Antichrist will be in the temple and will profane it and proclaim himself to be God. Then he will turn upon The Jews and Jesus says, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. You see, during the tribulation period, the focus in prophecy is always on the Jews being persecuted because I believe the church has been raptured to be with Jesus Christ. So he gives that warning to the Jews. Then in Matthew 24, verse 29, and much throughout the end of the chapter, he tries to warn them that the coming of Jesus Christ is an imminent event. Meaning it can happen at any time. We are never supposed to say Jesus Christ is coming back today because that is in direct contradiction to what the Word of God teaches. Jesus said, No man knoweth the day nor the hour, not the Son, not the angels in heaven, but the Father only. He wanted us to know. We will never be able to predict this is the day of Christ's return. This is when all, this is the date that all of these events will begin. But what he does want us to know, what he does want us to say, what he does want us to believe is that Jesus Christ could come back today. He could come back today, he could come back tomorrow, or a thousand years with the Lord is as one day. He's not slack concerning his promise, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Therefore, I'm supposed to live with these two principles in mind. Jesus Christ is coming back at any moment But because I don't know when, I'm supposed to focus on what he has called me to do, which is working, serving him, being faithful in being about my father's business, doing what he has commanded me to do. Matthew chapter 25, he begins the chapter in the first 12 verses by telling the parable of the 10 virgins who were waiting to meet the bridegroom. And they didn't know when he was coming, but they were supposed to be ready. Some of them were wise and had oil for their lamp. Some of them were foolish and thought, well, I'll take care of that later. He's probably not coming yet. Verse 6 says, at midnight there was a cry made, behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. The parable then describes that those who were ready and those who were not ready, both were surprised that the bridegroom showed up at midnight and they had to go stand before him and in like manner what the parable is representing is that Jesus is gone away to heaven he's the bridegroom the church is the bride we don't know when he's coming back so we're supposed to be ready and most commentators on the Bible will say that oil represents the Holy Spirit so the five that did not have oil were unsaved the five that did have the oil were saved But notice that both the lost and the saved were surprised when the bridegroom came. There was no two-minute warning. There was no three-and-a-half-year warning. There was no announcement made ahead of time. Hey, the bridegroom's about to show up. Make sure that you're ready. No, they were all asleep. The church and the lost will both be continuing about their business, not knowing that anything is different, not knowing that it's at the door. And then in a moment at midnight, There was a cry made. He showed up. He's here. It's time to face the Lord. The ones who did not have oil were not able to get anyone else's. And just because your family may have been saved, or if your dad is a preacher, or no matter where you're from, God does not have grandchildren. God has children. And if you want to be in his family, you must be born again. You must come to the Lord and receive salvation for yourself. So the ones who were not ready were shut out of the marriage supper just as I believe after Christ comes in the rapture those who were not ready will be left on earth to go through tribulation while the marriage supper of the Lamb is taking place in heaven. Then in the parable after the marriage supper was over there was a time when they all went back and faced the Lord again. Those who were shut out of the ceremony now had to stand in front of Him. In the... Meaning of the parable is this, in verse 13. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. This is what he's telling them. Be ready, you don't know when I'm coming. It's going to have an element of surprise. Then he moves into a second parable where the overarching theme is to illustrate the same point, that Jesus is coming and that you don't know when. But in this parable, he emphasizes one great truth that because we know he's coming and we don't know when he's coming, it doesn't mean we're supposed to run and hide and say, oh, well, Jesus is coming back at any moment. It doesn't really matter what I do. Rather, he wanted his disciples to know, don't worry about when I'm coming. Just know that I am coming. But there is something I want you to be worried about. Be busy serving me that when I come back, you may be found faithful. Do what I have commanded you to do. Jesus told his disciples over and over again through parables like these and through the scripture where he told them, no man knoweth the day or the hour. He was trying to tell them, I'm not going to set up my earthly kingdom right now. That's going to happen at a later date. Right now, I'm going to die for your sins, raise from the dead, ascend to heaven. And you will be busy spreading the gospel and at a day, a moment, an hour that you don't expect, then I will return. He told them this over and over again, and yet the disciples were so focused on the Old Testament prophecies that said the Messiah would rule and reign as king on the throne in Jerusalem, that they were so ready for deliverance from the Roman government and occupation That they kept looking for Jesus to change his mind, defeat Caesar, defeat Pilate, defeat the Romans, set them free, and take his place on the throne. He is going to fulfill all of those prophecies, by the way, but that will come at the second coming after the rapture after the tribulation when he comes to earth to defeat his enemies and rule and reign for a thousand years but he had tried over and over again to get this point through to them that i'm not going to set up my earthly kingdom now and you don't know when i'm coming back so jesus rose from the dead he was there for many days he was seen of many witnesses then the time came when he went out to bethany and it was his time to be ascended up into heaven and to go back to his father And the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, right before he ascended to heaven, the disciples said, wait, wait, we've got one more question. They said, wilt thou at this time set up thy kingdom? They didn't get the point. And then Jesus lovingly, kindly told them one more time, it is not for you to know the days nor the hours or the seasons which the Father holds in his hand. Okay? So there's the one message. It's not for you to know when Jesus is coming back. What's the second point? Jesus then pivoted and said, but ye shall be witnesses unto me after you receive power from the Holy Ghost. And that's the message to us as a church. I am coming. I will fulfill my promises. Be ready, but you don't know when. Therefore, your job is to go spread the gospel and keep doing what I have called you to do. So let's look at the second parable, which emphasizes this truth and which eventually emphasizes faithfulness as the key to being told, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Verse 13 says, watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the son of man cometh for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took... journey the meaning of this parable is not difficult to interpret Jesus is telling a story about a rich man who owned many assets had a lot of land had a lot of money and had a lot of servants who worked for him the man went to his servants and said I'm gonna travel away to a far journey I don't know how long I'll be gone I'll be back eventually don't worry about when I'm coming back just be busy doing what I told you to do while I'm gone The man in the story represents our Heavenly Father, represents Jesus Christ, who is going back to heaven. He will return, but we don't know when, and he has given us commands that we are supposed to be faithful in following until the day he returns. Notice that there were several servants that he calls, and the Bible says he gave them, talents. The word here for talent is not in the way that we would think of it as our ability or what we're good at, but rather it means a weight of something. It was a way of making a measurement. If you took five talents of gold, that's how you would weigh it out and you would know how much money it was. And then if you weighed out two talents of gold, you'd know how much that that was. He gave everyone something different, but he gave them all an amount of money to manage. The phrase there, to every man according to his several ability. The word therefore several simply means, I have it written down. I know what it means, but let me see. I wrote it down somewhere. It means, there it is, private or separate. So what he's simply saying is he gave to every man according to his own Ability, According to his own distinct ability, the good master looked and knew and said, this one is more responsible and more able to handle a larger sum. And this one is not quite up to that ability. So I will measure out and weigh out how much and what I give them to manage. I'm going to get to that a little bit later as one of the points throughout the rest of this story. But what a beautiful thing to know that our good master knows what our abilities are. He knows what we can handle. And he's not going to put too much on our plate that we are not able to bear. And he's not going to judge us if we're not able to get the same results as someone else has gotten. He simply will judge us according to whether or not we have been faithful to manage what he has given us. And whether you have the ability to take one talent and turn it into two or ten and turn it into twenty, it doesn't matter what you end up with. It matters if you're being a wise steward of what God has given you. And though money is used in this parable to illustrate the point, and yes, when we talk about stewardship, our money and what we do with it is an important part of how we manage things. It represents so much more than that. It represents our opportunities, our time, our actual talents, our knowledge, the light that we have been given. God gives it to us, and he says, I want you to be faithful, managing what I've given you to manage, doing what I've commanded you to do. Verse 16. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained other two. There's a separate parable about the pounds and the phrase is used Thy pound hath gained five pounds. That's kind of like us at the end of the holidays, right? That's why all our New Year's resolution is to work hard and to get into shape. But what he's talking about here in the parable is that they went to the bankers, which are called exchangers, and they found out what the interest rates were, and they invested that money knowing that their master was a wise man. He was a businessman, and he would want to know How have you managed what I gave you? I don't just want you to keep it. I want you to invest it. And what God has bestowed upon us in way of blessing is not for us to sit upon and enjoy until He comes back. It's for us to give away, to invest in His kingdom work so that we may see the work of God expanded. If God has blessed you this morning or given you opportunities, we're not supposed to say, well, God must just really love me and I must just be worth it. And that's why he's given me so much so I can enjoy it. Yes, we can enjoy God's blessings, but we're reminded Jesus Christ said to whom much is given of him shall much be required. Sometimes that verse causes me to tremble a little bit with conviction Because God's given me a lot. And if you're here this morning, God's given you a lot. We could have been born in a Middle Eastern country where Christians are put to death and the Bible is illegal. But we're here this morning in America with freedom. Many of us our whole life, having had the word of God taught to us line upon line, God has richly blessed us. But part of what the parable also teaches is he will hold us accountable for what we have done with what we were given. He's given us much, and of us shall much be required. A Christian is not supposed to be the resting place of the blessings of God, but rather we're supposed to be a conduit, like you would take an extension cord that hooks into the power source. It's not the source of the power, but its usefulness, its purpose is to hook up to the source of the power and then deliver it to something else. So too, God wants us to take his power, his blessings, his teaching, our light, our opportunities and spread it to other people. Give it away. Give the truth away to other people that they may be saved. Give our money away to causes that would please Jesus Christ. Give our time. Give our talents. Give the gospel This is what God wants us to do, to take what we have been given and not sit upon it, but invest it for his kingdom. Verse 17, and likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. Verse 18, but he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. We'll see the reckoning of these servants whenever we come back to closing out this parable and the main points from the text. But it's easy to see two of them were wise, two of them were faithful, but one of them was foolish. One of them was afraid. One of them said, I'll take what I've been given and simply hide it instead of investing it. Notice the next phrase at the beginning of verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. You see, Jesus wanted to illustrate two main points to his disciples. It's gonna be a long time before I come back. He didn't define how long, long time was because we see the disciples, many of them expecting and living in anticipation that Jesus Christ could come back. In their lifetime pull phrases from John and Peter and Paul and you will see that they described it as near as at the door as Paul saying when the rapture happens we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord he was talking about the church he didn't say for sure Jesus was coming back in his lifetime but he said he could come back in our lifetime so he didn't want to take off the table the fact that he could return in their lifetime But he also wanted them to know it's not right now. There's going to be a period in the middle where you're supposed to be busy serving me. Therefore, two truths, expect the return of Christ at any moment. And while you're waiting, be busy about his service, be working, be serving, be following the commands that he's given you. Follow the gospel in in the book of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, we find people who were shaken and troubled by the coming of the Lord. Then later in 2nd Thessalonians, we find a rebuke to people who were refusing to work and they were going about being busybodies in all of their idleness and time that they had on their hands. And many Bible teachers think that they were so consumed by the idea that Jesus was coming back soon that they were like, ah, it doesn't matter what we do. I don't even need to go to work because Jesus is coming back soon. And the epistle was written to them to know, be busy. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Yes, Christ is coming back, but be busy doing what you're supposed to do, which is working and providing for your family. Then there was another group of people addressed in Second Peter, where they had to be reminded and the scoffers had to be rebuked, who said, ah, it's been a long time since Jesus said he was coming back. All things continue as they have from the beginning. And they had to be reminded, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. But rather, he's patient. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A thousand years with the Lord is as one day and vice versa. So don't think he's not coming. He will come. This is what we're supposed to remember. He's coming back, and he could come at any moment, but... We're supposed to be busy serving him until he does come back because we don't know when it's going to be. Verse 20. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good And faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So many things from that simple verse. We can take great comfort and knowledge in the fact that it is possible to hear well done from God one day. And it's not dependent on us being the greatest achiever that has ever lived. Rather, what does the verse point to? He was a good servant, but he was a faithful servant and also it says thou hast been faithful over a few things therefore i will make thee ruler over many things i want to talk a little bit with the time that we have left here this morning and in about 10 minutes i'm going to stop wherever i'm at we'll be out on time and i'll finish this message up next week but i want what i want to talk about a little bit now is the idea of faith and of faithfulness What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be faithful? And what does faithfulness mean? The word here for faithful servant in this text means trustworthy. Okay. He said, well done thou good servant that I was able to trust. And what he's saying is I found you consistently doing what I left you to do, which was to manage the talents that I bestowed upon you. The Greek word for faith and the Greek word for faithful are very close, but they are slightly different. The word for faith means persuasion, credence, moral conviction, or belief. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. So in other words, faith is when I put my belief in God. Faith is when I look at the fact that God has promised something and I say, God, I believe you. I put my faith, my trust, my confidence in God himself. To have faith means to put complete trust or confidence in someone or something. We are told that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. When we have faith, we are putting our faith in the person Of Jesus Christ, we are saying I have complete confidence in him. I trust him. I believe that Jesus is God. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us that three great things remain in the Christian life when everything else is gone. And that is faith, hope, and love. It elevates love as the greatest, even of those three. But even as such, we do see that faith is put as one of those three key ingredients that stand above the rest the book of romans tells us that whatsoever we do that is not of faith is sin if we cannot have faith that what we are doing is right and is pleasing god and we think it might displease god but we do it anyway then it's sin because we're not able to do it through faith we're told that when we receive salvation we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god and not of works lest any man should boast. So, how are we saved? We're saved by the grace of God, but we are saved by His grace through the faith that we put in Him when we simply choose to believe God at what God has said. Amen. Hebrews 11 1 gives us the definition of faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. When we say faith, we're not simply saying we have hope as in that we're hoping against hope. Well, God's never showed up before, but I'm just hoping that he shows up this time. No, when we say we have faith, we say we're putting our complete confidence and trust in God himself and though I've never seen God face to face I have seen evidence and substance that God is real because I've seen him answer my prayers I felt him in my heart I know what it's like to commune with him I've seen his creation so therefore because I've never seen God face to face I still by faith put my faith in him and believe that he's real. I've never been to a place called heaven, but I know that God, whom I have faith in, said that it's real. Therefore, I choose to put my faith in what he said, and I put my faith, despite the fact I've never seen it with my eyes, I put my faith and belief in the fact that heaven is real, and that one day I will be there because God's promises are true. Verse 2 goes on to tell us that by faith the elders obtained a good report. And the rest of the chapter, all 40 verses, one of the most famous in all of the Bible, is a detailed description. The lives of Old Testament believers over and over again talked about what God did through their life. And it says they did it by faith. They achieved it by saying, I believe God, I choose to put my faith in him because I believe God and because I believe God will do what he promised, I will obey what God has told me to do. Verse three, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh even Abel and even Abraham. It said of Abraham, Abraham believed God and God counted it unto him for righteousness. In the Old Testament, they were not saved by works. They were saved by faith looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the event of the cross through shadows and the same way that we now are saved by faith, looking back on the cross, knowing every detail. First Corinthians 15 says that if there be no resurrection, then all those saints in the Lord which died before us are perished because there would be no hope for David or Abraham or Noah or anyone if it were not for faith, faith in God. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament about Enoch that he walked with God and he pleased God. And the Bible says that one time Enoch went and he walked with God and he was not for God took him. In a precursor of what the rapture will look like. Basically, the Bible describes that Enoch was walking and talking with God. And God said, you know what? Let's just finish this up here. And without him ever dying, he took Enoch and translated him from earth straight into heaven. Amen. And it was done by faith. Why did he please God? Because he had faith. He believed in God. And by the way, the book of Jude tells us that Enoch in his day, though it's not recorded in the written word of God, Enoch prophesied to his generation and said, Behold, the Lord God cometh with ten thousands of his saints to judge the earth. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation period. God's going to come back and the armies in heaven who are clothed in with white robes in the righteousness of God are going to come with him. And Enoch was preaching about that all the way back in the days before the flood. Hence, one of the reasons as he preached about end times, as he was taken in a picture of the rapture, I personally think he'd be a pretty good candidate for one of those two witnesses who will come in Revelation and preach during the first three and a half years to the world and convict them of their sin. Verse six then tells us this about faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. If you want to please God and you do not have faith, it's impossible. Why? Because it's the way that God has ordained it. He wants us to believe him at what he has said. Like Thomas who said, "I will not believe Jesus is rose from the dead until I see the nails in his hands." The nail prints in his hands. When Jesus showed up to Thomas, he walked to him and he said, Here they are and Thomas was broken and he said Lord I believe and Jesus said you believe because you have seen but blessed are those who believe yet have not seen. What was he telling him he was saying Thomas you believed I was the Messiah I told you I was going to rise again you should have believed by faith not because there was no evidence but you should have taken the evidence and substance that this Messiah who rose the dead and healed the sick was going to raise from the dead like he said he would. This pleases God without faith. It is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. How are you going to come to God if you don't believe that God exists? But also you have to believe that if you diligently seek God, he will reward you. And I'm here to tell you this morning, he's worth diligently seeking After And the rewards of being a lifelong faithful servant of Jesus Christ are worth it in each and every way. Two more verses. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned of God, of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. By faith, he said to the world, and the New Testament, by the way, calls him a preacher of righteousness, meaning he proclaimed the message of God. He proclaimed the righteousness of God, and he said, guess what? It's not raining, and it's never rained before, but God said there's going to be a flood, so I'm going to build this boat. And if you want to escape the wrath of God, you better get on the boat. That's faith. In action, he was doing what God told him to do, trusting that God would do what God had promised to do, and obeying him because he believed and had faith. One more, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. What a beautiful picture of faith. God said, Abraham, I've got a promised land for you. Okay, great, where is it? I'm not going to tell you, just get up and start going. And he did it. And he obeyed because he trusted God, not because he could see to the end of the path and know where it led, but because he knew God told him to get on that path. And God will not necessarily come to you and say, this is what I require of you for the rest of your life. This is the direction you're going. And by the way, if he did that, it might overwhelm us. He might not want us to know what we're going to face next year, next week, or 10 years from now. Rather, his grace is sufficient day by day. But what he will do, is give us enough light to take one more step. And if I will take that step, he'll show me where the next one comes. Be in action, be moving, be serving God because we have faith and because we believe in him. The definition of faith is believing God. We trust he will do what he said. Therefore, we choose to obey what he told us to do. Believing he will do what he said two thirds the way through the first page of three pages and i'm just now getting to the good part so i hate to stop now but we will do a tease if you want to hear the good part you're going to have to come back next sunday let's have a word of prayer lord thank you for all that you've done for us thank you for the blessings that you've bestowed upon us God be with us in the new year. May we be found faithful. And that's what we want to start out next Sunday talking about is as a church, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we to be found faithful? And is it up to us to achieve the work? Is it up to us to build the church? Or do we simply by faith serve you and trust that Jesus will build the church? As he said, yes, we believe Jesus will, but we also have to be doing what you told us to do. And as we've talked at the end of the message about defining faith, Father, may we place our faith in you for it is well founded. And as we have faith in you, may in 2022, we be found faithful, having long continuance consistently day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, doing what the Bible commands us to do so that one day we may hear well done thou good and faithful servant. I don't know what you want to do in Plano. I don't know what you want to do with the people here this morning, but I do know if we want to achieve your riches, your victories, what you want to do through us spiritually in our life, we're going to have to be found faithful. And may this message today and next week serve as a rallying cry for our church to say let's faithfully serve God one step in front of the other every day of our life in this short vapor of a life that we have in our time here May we one day, please, Father, be able to hear, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. The music will play. Let's have a time of prayer. The altar is open or in your seat. Let's lift up our prayer request to the Lord this morning.